Welcome to episode two of Trailblazers. Thanks so much for all of your feedback on the first episode, and I hope you all had a good 1017. This week, I sat down with Dr. Sherry Fondry. Right now, she's the Knowledge Exchange Lead for Addictions Foundation of Manitoba. She informs government officials and runs professional development with healthcare providers, but she has a deep background in pharmacy and pharmacology. I got the chance to talk to her about the health risks around cannabis, whether it really is a gateway drug, and what cannabis addiction actually is. Thanks to Dr. Fondry for coming on the show, and this is Trailblazers. So Manitoba has some of the strictest laws, and we're a few days into legalization. How are we doing so far? (laughs) It's been a topic of conversation literally everywhere I went, from a bus ride from my office to a meeting I had downtown to, um, you know, in a a hair salon and just about everywhere I've been. Um, I think it's a work in progress. I think across the country it's a work in progress. Um, I think that... um, the fact that there are different jurisdictions involved makes it complicated. So the, f- the federal government has certain things that they regulate, the provincial yeah. government and municipal. Yeah. There's overlap for some of that. Um, I think that's where some of the, the gray areas mm-hmm. still reside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to have a very steep learning curve for a while. Um, I think it hasn't been a bad start. And certainly the fact that any of the retail outlets seem to be quite busy, there was interest, there is information being exchanged. Yeah. My understanding of the training of the people who work at the retail outlets is quite solid. Yeah. Um, they have a pretty good understanding of what they're selling um, and aren't um, aren't overly promoting to the point, you know, like you wouldn't want to be over-served alcohol at a bar. Right. Um, there's fairly strict regulations about that. In the same way, you don't want to promote that with cannabis. Exactly. So I think after, what, four days now? Yeah. <laughs> I think we're doing okay. Yeah. Um, are we going to have to adjust things? Is it a bit of a moving target? Yes. Yeah. But um, if nothing else, it's opened up some conversations, and I think that's really important. Yeah, for sure. I went and visited one of the dispensaries, and they tell they told me to start low, go slow. You mm-hmm. know, so that's very they're very cautious of telling people to be safe and mm-hmm. take it easy. Um, what are some of the health risks that are associated with uh, recreational legalized cannabis now? It really does depend on on a number of factors. Um, One of the most important in terms of health risks is how early you start or the age that you start using. Any use before the brain is fully mature carries additional risks other than those that might be experienced by an adult, for example, who starts using. So early onset use, which really is before the age of 25. Really, yeah. Practically speaking, because the brain keeps developing until 25. And we actually have in our brains and our bodies what's called an endocannabinoid system. So our own internal endogenous cannabinoid system. It has a great many different purposes in in the body and the brain. One of the really key ones in the brain is it's actually responsible for some of the developmental stages. So during uh, fetal development, that system is responsible for actually really fundamentally building a brain in the fetus. In the first few years after birth, it's responsible for that really rapid growth and what we call neuroplasticity. Like just, if you've ever watched a baby learn from its environment. Yeah, making those new connections. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it, those new connections being formed, a lot of it has to do with that endocannabinoid system. And then another sensitive time is in early adolescence when what I think a lot of people have heard of pruning, where, you know, 
those connections yeah. that haven't been used regularly get pruned off to make yeah. the system more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, connections are made all over the brain. They're made faster, more efficient. You get more capacity for more complex thinking. And you're developing that important top-down control of your brain where your logical thinking brain is able to kind of rein in the emotional brain. So all of those things are actually under the control of the endocannabinoid system. Yeah. So imagine putting in massive amounts of a substance that interferes with that system. Yeah. Not a great idea. And I yeah. think it's been underappreciated that that's why the impetus to delay cannabis use as long as possible is there. Um, yeah. The worst effects are if you start using before the age of 16. Mm. But there could be longer-lasting effects, subtler but longer-lasting effects, even if you start between the ages of 16 and, say, 21 or yeah. up to 25. And then it would obviously increase the more you use it, right? Like That's the other big factor is, yeah. you know, the age of, of onset is a big factor in ter- determining the risks, how much you use, how frequently you use. And it's coming down to a lot of the products that you're using. High THC products carry more risk. Yeah. So that would be like your shatter, like the dab products, as yeah. opposed to just flower and stuff. Yeah. And even the flower products, um, street cannabis, the concentration now, average concentration of what you know law enforcement would seize and send away for analysis is between 15 and 20%. That's very high THC. Th- yeah. That's typical. Yeah. That wow. is your standard, what you're likely to be getting on the yeah. street. Unless you're buying from somebody who grows locally, doesn't have access to those hybrids that have really high THC qualities. We're seeing 20 to 30% THC on the street. Yeah. You know, so that's that's why today's product is so different from what our parents and even grandparents at this point might have experienced in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Right. In the 60s, 70s, you're looking at 1 to 3%. (sighs) By the 80s, you might be looking at 3 to 5%. Yeah, so it's just... And then it was selectively bred to get more and more. So by by now, we're up to 15 to just 20%. Just skyrocketed. Yeah. Um, so that, that carries risks that yeah. we n- didn't see when the THC levels were lower. And correspondingly, the another compound, cannabidiol, CBD, yeah. was higher. As THC is getting higher, the CBD is being bred out of the plant. Yeah. So the endo cannabinoid system that works mostly with with THC correct so yeah and and our own we have neurotransmitters in our body as well that work on that system but the THC is able to come in kind of co-opt that internal system in the same way that morphine can go in and co-opt the the endorphin system in our inner brain wow so THC is a big part of cannabis addiction does CBD play the same role that I've heard that you can't develop a tolerance to CBD is that true you cannot develop addiction to CBD CBD has no intoxicating effect whatsoever yeah you might develop tolerance and this is where like defining terms is important exactly tolerance is needing more of something over time to get the same effect Mm -hmm. so we don't have enough good evidence on can on CBD at this point to know do people need more of it over time to get to maintain their medical effects Mm -hmm. it's possible tolerance by itself doesn't mean addiction it's that psychological compulsion, mm. and that does not, cannot develop with CBD. It's completely non-intoxicating. It doesn't provide positive reinforcement in the same way that THC does. Mm. It's interesting that um, the WHO has recently recommended to the UN that they reconsider um, how cannabis itself is scheduled. It's currently scheduled at the same level as heroin. Mm-hmm. Does it need to be? And that's a question, an open question at this point. 
um, and they're looking at scheduling the um, components differently. So wow, yeah. how should THC be legislated? And wow. separately, how should CBD re- be regulated? And they made a very strong recommendation that CBD not be regulated in the way that addictive drugs are. Yeah, wow. So I found that very hopeful because not all of the medical benefit of the plant comes from CBD, but a lot of it does. Yeah, yeah. And why have the THC along with it if it's, you know, the anti-nausea effects probably are THC-related. Yeah. The improved appetite are like is likely THC-related. Most of the other positive effects medically are from CBD. Yeah. Or possibly a combination of some of the other substances. But mm-hmm. CBD seems to be the, the bigger player in yeah. terms of medical use. Yeah. And uh, it would be safer and more effective to concentrate on that. Right. And, and like even if THC does play a small part, have 10% then instead of 30, right? Like, or even 1%. Yeah, exactly. You, know, you might get that small enhancement yeah. of the effect with very little THC. Yeah. yeah. So then somebody who is um, suffering from cannabis dependence or addiction, what would that look like? What would those signs be? I, I have to say that it doesn't look like um, how we picture the stereotype of, of drug addiction right. or drug dependence. Right. Um, what we would see is somebody who hasn't reached their potential in all likelihood. If it's somebody who started using cannabis early, which is commonly somebody who ends up being dependent is somebody who started earlier in life. Yeah. Um, they likely didn't achieve their full educational potential. Yeah. They likely have not achieved their, their occupational potential. So they're, if they're employed, it would be in a lower paying job. Right. Um, they're less financially stable, are more likely to carry debt. Um, really what you see with that is, is just a diminishing of what you might've been. Yeah. Um, there is some research, there is debate on this. There's some research that seems to indicate that early use might actually drop your IQ, not by a remarkable amount, by up to about eight points. Um, as I said, there's still a great deal of debate on that point. Um, that needs to be clarified, but even beyond IQ, you could have a really, really bright person who showed a lot of promise, you know, in their early years, and that promise just never was was fully achieved. Yeah. So, a little bit of a lack of motivation to push outside of comfortable boundaries and and uh, achieve what they might otherwise have done. Yeah, I've heard that there can be some effects on mental health as well. Absolutely, yeah. and again. The worst effects from cannabis are for those who use heavily. So yeah. we're talking about daily use and even multiple times a day. Um, so there is a very, very strong link. Um, I find myself a bit frustrated listening to some of the media lately around cannabis saying, oh, there's still debate on this or that point. There isn't any debate yeah. about the mental health effects. Many young people, um, adults as well, uh, use cannabis to control anxiety symptoms. And this is where you have to think, step back and just think about drug use in general. People use drugs for, for reasons, for good reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, it's to manage symptoms. Yeah. Um, and they work. The drugs work in the short term. In the longer term, not so much. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly that with, with cannabis, especially high THC products. In the short term, while you're intoxicated, you're not feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. In the longer term, though, there's very good evidence that that um, cannabis actually increases the likelihood of anxiety really? symptoms. The evidence for depression over the long term isn't as strong, 
but there is there is some suggestion that depression may actually worsen with cannabis use, ongoing cannabis use. Yeah. And I think the most important mental health issue is psychosis. I was yeah, just going to mention, and that. that's where um, the National Academies of Science um, did a study looking at where is the evidence on all of these health claims around cannabis. And they dug down and looked at everything. Yeah. And for the anxiety and depression, they indicated that the, the level of evidence was moderate, right. which is pretty good. Yeah. For psychosis, the link to psychosis, the level of evidence is substantial, which is um, we can't do the kinds of studies that will nail down cause and effect yeah. because it's not ethical. We would have to run studies and, you know, have a randomized controlled um, study design where half the participants get a fake, you know, placebo, half yeah. them get cannabis, and that we actually push them towards psychosis. And that's just not yeah, ethical. <laughs> right. However, the substantial evidence of the link between heavy daily cannabis use and the development of psychosis is pretty certain. So would that be somebody who already has like family links to psychosis or somebody who doesn't can develop it as well? Yes to both. Yeah. Um, certainly we, we have known for some time that the link, somebody with a family history of psychosis, schizophrenia, probably bipolar disorder as well, yeah. um, that that makes the risk pretty evident. Yeah. There are increasing um, new evidence, new lines of evidence that's showing that there are people with absolutely no family history who are developing psychosis. It seems like one of the common threads there is early trauma. Yeah. So that would increase your risk for later developing psychosis. We know that early trauma is a link um, for developing psychosis from other drugs like methamphetamine as well. So even in the absence of any family history of prior psychotic type disorders, there is a potential. Yeah. Um, and it could be anywhere from, depending on your level of use, how much THC, is in the product yep. could be anywhere from doubling your risk of psychosis to as much as 10 times the risk of psychosis. That's um, And risk of psychosis for the general population is about one in a hundred. Yeah. So the, the risk isn't super high to begin with, but if you're doubling or, you know, multiplying yeah. your, your risk, that's, yeah. that's a concern, especially for a young person. Yeah. We also know that, um, again, for people who do have a risk of psychosis, that, um, heavy use of cannabis will cause it to emerge earlier. So yeah. you could lose, you know, five to ten years of happier, more productive wow. life, yeah. young wow. life. Yeah. The rates of cannabis dependence, that would obviously increase the younger you are when you start using, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And again, we've got fairly good evidence of um, what we call the addictive potential of different drugs. Yeah. Um, just from looking at populations over long periods of time. So. For smoking, um, the addictive potential is around 35% of smokers will become dependent. Um, a lot of smokers don't really inhale all that much. So they're not <laughs> getting as much nicotine. Yeah. <laughs> um, they may behave as if they're dependent on it, but you know, yeah. many people aren't. For alcohol, you know, very common substance, about 10% of people who drink would be expected to become dependent over time. Yeah. Um, for the overall general population for cannabis, it's about 9%. About 1 in 11 okay. would be expected to become dependent. However... If you start early in adolescence, it almost doubles to about 17%. Wow. And that would be around 16 when you start? or Anytime before age 18. Okay. Um, yeah. If you're a heavy daily user, regardless of your age, if you're a heavy daily user, your, inc- your risk increases to between 25 and 50%. Wow. So, you know, the stereotype of the stoner living in their parents' ba- 
basement, yeah. you know, doing nothing but but smoking up and eating Cheetos. Yeah. Um, that kind of behavior is highly likely. It doesn't come from nowhere, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so the, the claim that cannabis is a gateway drug that's been around for a really long mm-hmm. time. Um, is that true? There's little or no evidence that any drug is an actual gateway drug. Yeah. Um, if you if you conceive of gateway as being you know using one drug will inevitably inevitably make you use another stronger drug. There's really not much evidence right. for any drug having that kind of effect. People use drugs that are easily accessible. So in our society, the first drugs that are encountered are usually caffeine, alcohol, and, and uh, tobacco to a certain extent, and cannabis, things mm-hmm. that are readily available that young people can ex- access. Mm-hmm. So if you were to interview somebody who has an opioid addiction or methamphetamine addiction later in life, and you mm-hmm. ask them what drugs they previously used, inevitably, they're going to say alcohol and cannabis, right. almost inevitably. Yeah. It's just not that those drugs made them go on to meth or fentanyl. Yeah. It's the fact that they were just around in the environment, yeah. easy to get. Yeah. Um, there is one slight kind of twist on that story. Um, I think that the gateway hypothesis has been pretty thoroughly discredited in general. Yeah. But there is a little bit of evidence that regular tobacco use, nicotine mm-hmm. use, primes the brain to expect and want stronger stimulants. So there's a bit of a link between tobacco use and moving on to cocaine use, for example. Really? Um, but even that is is pretty fuzzy. Yeah. Wow. So then for somebody who is wanting to seek treatment for a cannabis addiction, what would that treatment look like? What's available to them? It's it's interesting. For young people, and again, you know, a lot of people start in early age. Um, amongst our clients at AFM who are 18 and younger, cannabis is the main drug that they seek treatment Around. Really, yeah. Um, for adults, it's alcohol, with cannabis being a second. And for youth, yeah. it's cannabis first and then alcohol being kind of the second drug that they might need help with. Yeah. Um, I think people have a bit of a misperception about what treatment is. And I think from popular media, we tend to think that it's, you know, going away someplace, being away for weeks or months, yeah. and living there, yeah. and then you come out all shiny and clean. Yeah. Um, that's 10% of our clients. AFM sees between 15 and 20,000 clients a year, and 90% of those are in our community-based services. And certainly for our youth clients, they're far more likely to access treatment in the community-based services. So that would look like um, going to an office and meeting with a counselor you yeah. know, one or more times a week. Yeah. Um, you're likely to be involved in group counseling sessions. Um, there's a lot of evidence to show that group counseling is just as effective as one-on-one counseling. Yeah. There may be the introduction of family counseling, depending on the family dynamic. Yeah. Um, proves very helpful for both youth and for adults. Yeah, for sure. Um, so lots of different treatment modalities. There is an encouragement for people, especially in our residential treatment facilities, that they seek out some sort of self-help support. Um, for many, that looks like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. It might look like CA, Cocaine Anonymous. Um, the reason for that is that 12-step programs, self-help programs, aren't treatment. They're support. Yeah. And for so many people, um, what is lacking in you know kind of their ordinary lives that could make them successful is support of people who, who understand what mm-hmm. they're going through. So that's really something they can provide. Um, there's a recent 
publication. Um, Johan Hari wrote a book a few years ago where he made the, I think, the very important um, observation that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. And for people who may have burned some bridges, who may have lost some relationships through the course of their addiction, that support people kind of function is important yeah of course for young younger people there there are mutual aid kind of supports it may be though that the younger person doesn't find a good fit necessarily yeah. in some of those groups um so other activities you know we've we've started taking um clients to you know different recreational um facilities and you know doing floor hockey or having pickup basketball or you know really connecting people with other kinds of um supportive people but also activities that could could substitute for something like cannabis yeah um i've also heard that they use um nabilone i think that's how you pronounce it which is a drug that mimics the effects of cbd to combat cannabis addiction it's not prescribed widely um, in canada it is prescribed more in other parts of the world. Yeah. Um, a substitution therapy like that, substituting a safer product, you know, to stabilize a person, yeah. get them functional, and then presumably wean, wean them off of that substitute over time. Yeah. Um, it's a reasonable approach where there is a substitute available. So yeah. for opiate addiction, we have substitutes that work very, very well, yeah. um, which actually for opiate addiction are the gold standard that's what people should be actually yeah <laughs> aiming for um there's less information and evidence supporting you know substituting nablone yeah it's at least theoretically a reasonable approach to take yeah for sure and it's and it's a pharmaceutical you know it's it's a pill form yeah yeah you know, so you're not getting the hazards from smoking a product yeah. um it's a standardized dose so yeah. you know what you're getting um and like with any drug people tend not to maybe go off the rails quite as much with cannabis dependence as they might with opiate dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there are aspects of their life that, you know, become uncontrollable. Yeah, that you lose, yeah. Um, so the official statement on legalization that AFM released, they recommended a public health approach. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Public health approach is trying to minimize harms to in areas where there's uh, specific vulnerability. So we want to reduce harms to um, adolescents, to young people. We want to make sure that the regulations are designed such that early use is less likely to happen after legalization than before. I'm not sure that we've got it right, Yeah. but we have some hopes that that, that might be the case. Yeah. Um, it looks like um, one of the other great harms from, from cannabis use is around um, using and driving. Yeah. So many people who smoke believe that they are better drivers after they've smoked weed yeah. than before. Yeah. Um, and I found it really interesting that CAA released a study in the past week, and their subjects were young people hmm. who had some experience with smoking weed, and they put them in driving simulators, and it was very informative. Yeah. All of these young, none of the young people felt safe to drive at any level of consumption. Wow which is not what their prior experience had been. Yeah. And they could actually see from the driving simulator how poorly they were doing. Yeah. It was, I think, a bit of an yeah, education. Yeah, it changed their minds. So that, you know, having having regulations around um, impaired driving, making yeah. sure that we're taking care of that. And really looking at um, things like Manitoba has decided um, 
very wisely not to have uh, sales of cannabis alongside sales of alcohol. The same bodies are responsible for distributing and regulating, so the the Liquor, Gaming and Cannabis Authority um, is the regulator. The Liquor and Lotteries Corporation is the distributor, the wholesale and distributor. Mm -hmm. You know, so those things can be combined, but we didn't want to have cannabis sold in a liquor mart. In the same space, We don't want to promote the use of two together. And it's interesting, only one province really has gone that way, and that's Nova Scotia. (laughs) And I know their government was specifically advised against it, so, you know, not all of the jurisdictions are making really great public health decisions. Um, I think, you know, we're, again... There's no absolutes, there's no black and white Mm -hmm. in any of this. We'd be much more comfortable to say, um, like with alcohol, we've got very long-standing good evidence that 0.08, most people are too impaired to drive. Mm -hmm. We don't have that certainty with cannabis. We may never have that certainty with cannabis. So it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. For people who want to talk to their kids about cannabis, how should they approach that subject? Early. Early. Often. And age appropriate. Yeah. Um, have conversations about, um, not necessarily even about drugs, have early conversations about how kids are doing. Um, how are they coping? What methods do they use to cope? Are you feeling stressed? It's distressing to me to hear how much anxiety and stress young people feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that hasn't been previous generations' experience. Um, the fact that drugs like Xanax are so popular in young people mm-hmm. speaks to the fact that they're feeling stressed a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So having early conversations about how do you deal with stress? What do you do? And how can you do that healthily and effectively? Um, you know, when stress is something that's driving a lot of substance use, it makes sense to start there. Mm-hmm. And you can have those conversations with toddlers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just emotional control, ability to... to self-soothe, all of these things that we talk about with, you know, babies, infants, toddlers, younger people, that's part of the conversation mm-hmm. that eventually will evolve into into around substances. Yeah. Being non-judgmental, being open, um, you know, accepting that you might hear things that you might be uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> with, um, and, and not judging in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those are important just communication skills but it's important around these discussions to to have them to be honest about them mm-hmm. um, to provide answers as accurately as you're able to mm-hmm. and don't be afraid to say you don't know something yeah that's you a know, good point yeah. if you don't know you know you and your child go to the internet look it up together yeah and that way the parent can help guide the the young person towards accurate authentic sites yeah uh, most young people I know believe that they know everything they need to know about <laughs> cannabis and they believe that all of the information they've got is accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, they're maybe falling short a little bit on the um, on their uh, the credibility of their sources. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the information sources look very credible. Mm-hmm. And it's not until you start digging down and looking at it with, um, I guess, a bit of a, a BS detector. Yeah. You yeah. Know, is this a site that's prom- promoting use? Is it a site that's selling? Mm-hmm. If it's a site that's selling a product, you know, they're, they're marketing. Keep that in mind, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they want you to buy their product, and that's yeah. the primary goal. Yeah. Um, so all of those things are, are part of the ongoing conversation. It's not a one-time thing. It's something that you start early in childhood and all the way through your kid's yeah. life. And chances are, by the time they get to the highest risk ages, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 
um, you're not going to have the same kind of worries because you've already got the dialogue open. So kind of on the flip side of that, um, going over to medical cannabis now, have you seen cases where cannabis has helped people with addictions to other substances? That's an interesting point. And certainly um, there is evidence in the U.S. It's not super conclusive, but you know, at least interesting and persuasive that in states where they've had long-term um, medical cannabis available, mm-hmm. that use of prescription opioids can decrease. Mm-hmm. So substituting a cannabis product, hopefully not a smoked one, mm-hmm. my understanding that the medical community, the medical cannabis community is shifting away from the smoked form and more towards um, non-smoked forms, mm-hmm. which again, that's a public health approach. You don't want to have the inhaling combustible yeah. material, but um, you know that kind of substitution is definitely harm reduction. Um, there are more risks, more harms potentially with higher dose opiates than there would be mm-hmm. with, with cannabis products yeah. if they're used wisely. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that that necessarily is going to um, manage addiction. It might help keep a population from going down that path towards opiate addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you know, that's information that I really look forward to hearing yeah. more about. Yeah. I, I have heard um, directly from, from individuals, individuals concerned, um, people who have had incredibly high-risk lives with, with a lot of trauma and have um, you know, been in an environment where very heavy use of something like um, cocaine, crack cocaine, meth mm-hmm. is almost life-preserving. You know, moving into that, that kind of use makes sense. Cannabis, moving from that into well, cannabis. Well, actually, you know, for people who are street involved from a young age, who are sexually exploited, mm-hmm. um, it actually makes sense to use meth for them oh, in the yes, short term. Yeah, yeah. Keeps them awake, yeah. helps them from being hungry. Survival, yeah. Yeah, survival, base, yeah. base survival, um, yeah. and just surviving the traumas, the ongoing traumas. I've had the privilege of speaking with a few individuals with that kind of, you know, incredibly scary background. Yeah who have successfully shifted from crack cocaine or meth use to cannabis use. Mm-hmm. And one woman that just amazed me had already, she completely shifted to cannabis and she said, I'm using a lot, but my goal is to cut down on my cannabis use and eventually hope, hopefully be cannabis free as yeah. well. And I thought, what, what an amazing story of success for somebody yeah. who's has so many strikes against them to be able to, go down that path yeah. of reducing harm over time. Oh my gosh. Um, so yeah, there, there, there are occasions, there are circumstances where, you know, if you're looking at the lesser of the evils. Exactly. That's uh, a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you said that there, there has been an increase in people seeking treatment for cannabis mm-hmm. addiction. You think that will increase after legalization? I expect a bump, um, in use and harms from use. Um, it's interesting, the Liquor and Gaming Authority a year ago, when there's still just the Liquor and Gaming Authority, yeah. um, did a survey in Manitoba where they looked at a um, number of issues around cannabis use, but prevalence of use. And they talked to people age 18 and over in Manitoba. Very, very well-designed survey. What they found was 21% of Manitobans 18 and over currently used cannabis mm. in the past year. Roughly 21% said they didn't currently use, but they might use when it's legal. Mm-hmm. And 56% they didn't said they didn't use and had no plans on using. So of that 21% who might use, I'm thinking at least a few of them are pretty risk averse. Yeah. And that's why they're not using already, because yeah. it's illegal. So not all of them are going to suddenly start 
smoking up. Mm -hmm. Some people who already use indicated that they probably use more. Mm -hmm. So there's some harm there. So new users, I don't expect there to be an overwhelming number of new users. Um, Current users who might use more, there's some risk there. Um, Certainly in places like Colorado and Washington State, who were the earliest states to, to legalize, they found a slight bump in use, a spike, and then it dropped down. Overall, in the adult population, use is a bit higher now than it was previously, mm-hmm. but not dramatically so. Yeah. They haven't found increased use in, in youth in the longer term. Yeah. Wow. So again, it's hard to completely trust surveys because you know you have to trust that people are answering answering them honestly. Yeah. <laughs> And school-based surveys, surveys are notorious for, you know, young people not necessarily taking them yeah. seriously. But it seems as if youth use has not increased or increased dramatically. They had a lot of really good prevention interventions in, in place. Mm-hmm. We do too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we're not going to see anything dramatically different than what we've already had. Um, partly because Canada, Canada is already one of the, has one of the most highest prevalence of cannabis use yeah. in the world yeah and amongst youth we're probably number one pretty much everybody who wanted to be using cannabis already was yeah so you know we'll we'll continue doing everything we've always done to try to educate people inform them accurately help them make better informed decisions around substance use in general help young people make better life decisions and coping decisions mm-hmm. and you know see where this goes yeah yeah um, that's a good note to end on. Did you have anything you wanted to add? or I don't think so. You've done really good preparation. Awesome. Thank you really, so much. Really good preparation. Thanks for coming in. So that was episode two. Thanks so much to Dr. Fondry for coming on the show. If you or anyone you know is looking to seek help for a cannabis addiction, you can get in contact with AFM online. But let us know what you thought of this episode on social media. We're at Trailblazers Pod on all platforms. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.